Good morning, Northbrook. Good morning. As you can see, I am not John. Uh, John and Terry are on vacation this week. Um, I spoke to him yesterday. They have enjoyed this week. It's been recharging. John says he has trouble relaxing, but it's been a good week for them. So he asked me to fill in. Originally, he asked me to fill in back in March. Um, they were supposed to travel to Canada to see their granddaughters, and then they were supposed to travel again just this week to travel to Canada, but the border is still closed. Um, but he decided they needed the week off anyways. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 4, uh, I'm going to be reading from verses 16 to 26. Um, as you're turning there, um, I, am, I have not preached before just for all of your benefit. Uh, so this is, this is a new experience for me, but um, it's a joy, joy to do. It's been wonderful to prepare this and kind of approach things from a different perspective. I've been teaching a Bible study for 10-ish years now, um, and have been going through John um, for a large portion of that. Uh, it's, it's a slow Bible study. We dive very deeply and spend a lot of time looking at all the facets of Scripture as we go through it. So hopefully some of that will translate here um, to the sermon this morning. Uh, Before I read these verses, just to provide a little context of where we're at in John's Gospel, um, Jesus and his disciples at this point are traveling from Judea in the south of Israel north to Galilee. They've been in Judea. Um, Jesus had cleared the temple in chapter 2 of John, uh, had confronted the the leaders of of Jerusalem there um, and the chiefs and and chief priests in the temple. Uh, He had spoken with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and this is where John 3.16 comes in. And now in chapter 4, they are traveling back to his home region of Galilee. In John chapter 4, John says that he had to pass through Samaria on his way north to Galilee. This is not a statement of a geographical necessity, because for those in Judea in the south, more often than not, they would avoid the region of Samaria. Um, to set foot on the region of Samaria for many of the most uh, orthodox rabbis at the time would have been forbidden completely. They would have avoided it. They would have had nothing to do with the region of Samaria. But John's statement here is not one of geographical necessity, but one of divine necessity. Jesus has a reason for going through Samaria here, and it is first and foremost to meet with someone at this well in the middle of Samaria. Around midday, he and his disciples stop at this well um, in this small town of Sychar, where Jacob's well was located, John tells us. Jacob's well is a reference to this land that Jacob gave to Joseph at the end of of Genesis when Jacob dies. And this is near the region of Shechem, which is where Abraham entered the promised land between the mounts of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. If you remember when John was going through Numbers, uh, actually in Galatians, um, when he talked about the mountains of Mount Ebal and Gerizim, these are the mountains of blessing and cursing, where God took half the tribes of Israel, put half of them on Mount Ebal, half of them on Mount Gerizim, The ones on Mount Ebal, he pronounced the curses to, saying, if you do not obey, these are the curses that will come upon you. And the ones on Mount Gerizim, if you do obey, these are the blessings that will come upon you. This will become important later as as we go through this. So here at this town, Jesus speaks with this Samaritan woman. Um, As we'll see as we go through here, the magnitude of the taboos that Jesus is breaking here Um, is a little hard to overstate. Um, Jesus, as a Jewish male rabbi, is initiating a conversation with a Samaritan woman of questionable moral character. Um, All of those aspects feed into the fact that this is a, a very unusual thing for Jesus to be doing in the midst of this. There's a lot that happens in this conversation. He speaks to her of living water as opposed to the physical water of this well. She misunderstands most of the way, but he continues to engage with her. This whole chapter kind of stands in contrast in John's gospel to the chapters before it and the chapters after it. The chapters before and after is Jesus interacting with the Jews in Judea. And the response that he gets there is one of response to his miracles, response to the things he's doing, but not the response of true faith. In contrast, here in chapter 4, Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman, which ultimately will lead to the entire town and, and the region around it coming to faith in Christ. So the Jews, God's chosen people, to whom Jesus was sent, 
do not respond in faith, but the Samaritans here do. Throughout the course of this conversation, Jesus continues to reveal himself more and more fully. He demonstrates his supernatural knowledge of this woman. And that's where we're going to pick up here in verse 16. So let me read from verse 16 down to verse 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At the heart of this piece of the conversation that Jesus has with this woman is one of the ultimate questions. By ultimate questions, I mean those questions that people have been asking for thousands of years Um, and seeking to answer. Philosophy is is wrapped up in this realm of ultimate questions. Uh, And probably the ultimate question is, why are we here? Why do we exist? What is our purpose? Is there any meaning to our existence? Philosophy answers this in a whole bunch of different ways, uh, broadly grouped into three basic categories. The first of those is that there is no meaning. There's no meaning of life, and in one variation of this, there's no point in even searching for meaning of life. A rather humorous example of this, uh, if anyone's familiar with Douglas Adams and his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In this book, he talks about a supercomputer that was created to find the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And after seven and a half million years of calculating this answer, the answer that is arrived at is 42. The problem there is that they don't know what the question is. So they have the answer, they don't know the question, so they make another supercomputer, and this one takes billions of years. It's in fact the Earth is a, is, is a supercomputer in this book. Billions of years, something goes wrong along the way, and the best question that they end up getting out of it is what is six times nine with the answer of 42? Those of you familiar with math should see the problem there. The point being, there is no meaning. And ultimately, this search for meaning is futile. That, that, that's kind of the uh, ph- philosophical ideal wrapped up in, in, that, in that message from this book. Another alternative is naturalism. Secular humanism, many of you I'm sure have heard that term before. Meaning comes from what can be observed, from what we can see, feel, touch, smell, hear. Carl Sagan's Cosmos series, if anyone's familiar with that, and the newer reboot they just did a few years ago, is an excellent example of this, trying to derive meaning from scientific discovery and scientific observation, um, apart from anything else. And then there, of course, there's supernaturalism, which is what we as biblical Christians would espouse, that there is something greater than just the physical world, than just the physical reality that we can see. And meaning comes from those things, in our case, from God, that we have meaning because of our relationship with God. Biblical Christianity, in particular, roots our purpose and our meaning in relation to that creator. The Westminster Catechism, question one, sums this up very well. Many of you are probably familiar with this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, why do we exist? What is our purpose? And the answer to this is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So our purpose is to glorify God. Our purpose is to worship God. This is the reason we exist. This is the reason that God 
created us. God was not lacking in anything before creation. He didn't need us to make himself complete. He didn't need any relationship beyond himself, even. Within the Trinity, the relationships were perfect and complete in and of themselves. He needed nothing outside of himself. And yet he still chose to create Adam and a universe within which Adam would dwell in order to first reveal himself to something and then to have this creation respond to that revelation. That foundationally is what worship is. It is the response to the revelation of God about himself. So what I, would, what I would submit is that worship of God is the primary purpose for which humanity and the entire universe was created. Scripture talks about how the creation worships God. Um, in Romans 1.20, uh, Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The entire creation testifies to who God is. It reveals God and in so doing brings glory to him. It worships him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Excellent book on this topic of worship is a book called Created for Worship by the author Noel Dew. Uh, Just a wonderful biblical Uh, and systematic theological look at the topic of worship throughout the entire scriptures, um, start to finish. It's, It's just an excellent book. In there, he has a wonderful quote describing worship. When we speak of worship, we are not speaking about an activity of one's life. It's not some just another thing that we do, but he's speaking of the activity of one's life, that which gives that life its entire focus and direction. This is what worship is. God has created humanity for this sole purpose and this sole driving purpose of worshiping him. And from the very beginning with Adam's fall, the battle for worship and the corruption of that primary purpose is what lies at the heart of sin what lies at the heart of the brokenness that this world has. One element, one element of this I, I don't have time to fully develop this morning um, is this idea, uh, if this is our primary purpose, this is what we are created to do, then it's not a question of if we will worship. God created us for that purpose. It is innate in us. We will worship. The question is, what will we worship? So not if we will worship, but what we will worship. Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve from the very beginning was fighting against this. He told them that they could be like God. He encouraged them, tempted them to worship themselves. And ultimately, this leads to the fall. Israel's history demonstrates this as well. They have this cycle throughout all of Israel's history. It's, it's really clear in the book of Judges, the constant cycle of, of disobedience leading into idolatry, leading into being judged by God, leading into restoration, falling back into obedience, and then going back to idolatry. This cycle throughout Israel's history, but idolatry is key. Even in the midst of other sins and other disobedience to the commands of God, idolatry shows up again and again and again throughout Israel's history. Worship is at the heart of this battle here on earth. If we've been created with an innate capacity and an innate desire for worship, it follows that the root of all of our sin is some form of idolatry. And most commonly, I would submit worshiping the God of self, in some ways seeking to elevate ourself above God. So we have this ultimate question, what is our purpose? And our purpose is to glorify God. What we see in this conversation here between Jesus and this woman is essentially a follow-up question to that. How should we worship God? 
She really makes a statement here, doesn't ask a question, but there's a question behind it. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's effectively asking Jesus, who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? The distinction that, that she's talking about here, the Samaritans are, are, Samaria was the region of the northern kingdom of Israel. After the death of Solomon, the combined kingdom of Israel split. And we end up with two kingdoms. We have Judah in the south, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And you have the other ten tribes in the north. And that northern kingdom would eventually come to be known as Samaria. Their capital city was named Samaria um, by King Omri, who was the sixth king in the northern kingdom. And so the whole region came to be known as Samaria. This northern region would be captured and exiled by the Assyrians as a judgment from God. And idolatry is at the root of that judgment. Um, The northern kingdom throughout their entire history was led by wicked kings who disobeyed the commands of God. In the southern kingdom, there were plenty of wicked kings, but they would occasionally in this cycle turn back and have kings who would lead the people back to the worship of God. But in the northern kingdom, that never happened. They continuously had evil kings in the north. And so eventually God judges them and has the Assyrians capture them. So many of the elites of Israel, the Israelite leaders and the upper class in the northern kingdom are exiled out, uh, but many peoples are left in the region. And the kingdom of Assyria would bring in foreigners to the places that they had conquered to govern the region and to lead the region. And those people would intermarry with the people there and adopt many many of the practices of the people there. And so what you ended up with is this melting pot of many different cultures and ideas and religions in this northern kingdom. What this would mean to the Jews is that the Samaritans were first off political rebels. They had broken off from the kingdom of God, in their view. They were racial half-breeds. They were not pure Jews. There was intermarrying all throughout the northern kingdom. And so they, they did not have claim to the racial line of Abraham anymore. And they were tainted by foreign gods and worship practices. They did not worship in the same way as the Jews did in the southern kingdom. And so for all these reasons, this leads to the divide between the Samaritans and the Jews and the hatred that the Jews have for the Samaritans. The Samaritans were unclean and the Jews would have nothing to do with them. This is why this conversation between Jesus and this woman is so extraordinary. As far as Samaritan worship would go, The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as their scripture, the Pentateuch. They did not accept anything that came after it. None of the prophets, uh, none of the accounts of the taking of the land, none of that was considered part of the Samaritan scripture. They also had their own version of the Pentateuch with slight differences to the Hebrew Bible. For example, Deuteronomy 12.5 says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. See, this fulfilled later in God declaring Jerusalem as the city, his dwelling place on earth, where his temple will eventually reside and where the kingdom of Israel will be focused, is in the city of Jerusalem. However, the Samaritan version of this passage reads not the place that the Lord your God will will choose out of all the tribes, but the place the Lord your God has chosen, past tense. And so they view this a little bit differently. The Samaritans associate this idea and this passage with Mount Gerizim, which is right where Jesus is having this conversation here. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that Mount Gerizim, as I said in Deuteronomy chapter 27, is the mountain of blessing, the mountain upon which God blessed the people of God. And so for that reason, it becomes a focal point of Samaritan worship. It's also the place near Shechem where Abraham first entered the promised land and was first given the promise from God. So for those reasons, among others, Mount Gerizim becomes the focal point of Samaritan worship. In fact, they even set up a temple there about 400 years before Christ. They set up their own temple 
on Mount Gerizim to rival the temple in Jerusalem, and that is where the focus of their worship happens. About a hundred years prior to this conversation, that temple had been destroyed and had not been rebuilt, but they continued to use the mountain of Mount Gerizim as the site where their worship happens. And so they would perform the same sacrifices and the same worship rites that the Old Covenant laid out for the people of God on Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. So there's this great divide between the Samaritans, and this goes back a thousand years between the Samaritans and the Jews, back to the very beginnings of the split of the kingdom of Israel. So her statement here, with really a question at the heart, focuses on this question of where should we worship? Who is right? What is the right way to worship God? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? This woman asked Jesus to weigh in on this central issue between this in, in the midst of this divide because she has surmised, rightly, that he is at the very least speaking for God as a prophet in the way he has revealed himself to her. Jesus answers this. He gives three kind of distinct answers that all form one central idea as we go through here. So what I want to do this morning is work through this and look at the three answers he gives um, and help us hopefully to come to a better understanding of what it means for the people of God now to worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus' first response to her. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Anytime in John's Gospel you see the phrase, the hour. The hour is coming. Uh, the hour is here. The hour is at hand. Shows up many ways in John's Gospel. Anytime John talks about the hour, he's always talking about this future time that's going to come the climax of his gospel. It's the culmination of Jesus' ministry here on earth, namely his death on the cross, his resurrection, everything that's accomplished in and through those. That is what John refers to when he refers to the hour. John, in fact, refers to this hour and his death on the cross specifically as Jesus' glorification. This is where Jesus is glorified on the cross. Not as a result or after the cross, but on the cross. Jesus is glorified. Anywhere John speaks of this hour, it's in reference to the cross, the resurrection, and everything accomplished by it. So Jesus says that a time is coming, and this time will be ushered in by the cross, when neither Jerusalem nor Gerizim is going to be the focal point of the worship of God. In other words, this great debate that is at the heart of the Jewish and Samaritan divide is about to be rendered obsolete. We read from Hebrews 9 this morning for our prayer time. We've been reading from Hebrews 8 and 9 over the past few weeks. And this section of Hebrews speaks to this reality in reference to the Old Covenant and specifically the Jerusalem form of worship. The end of chapter 8 the author says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. At the time the author wrote this in Hebrews was likely just a few years before the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. The last vestige of old covenant worship and the last ability to perform old covenant worship was done away with at that point. And it has been replaced with something new. The old covenant has been rendered obsolete by virtue of Jesus ushering in a new one. Thus, all the accoutrements of worship in the Old Testament, everything that was done in relation to worship, the sacrifices, the offerings that were made, everything was likewise rendered obsolete. John's Gospel actually has given us a glimpse of this concept just a couple chapters earlier. In John chapter 2, Jesus has traveled to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he goes to the temple. He sees the temple filled with money changers and uh, men selling livestock, all for 
the purposes of the worship within the temple, but it had changed from the purpose that it was designed for. That this temple was designed to be a place of prayer, and the outer courts were designed to be a place where non-Jews could come and meet with God. It was the closest they could get, the farthest into the temple they could, they could enter, and here it was filled with animals, with money changers, with commerce. Its purpose had been corrupted. So Jesus clears the temple, and after this, the religious leaders come up to him and ask him, on whose authority do you do this? What authority do you have to do what you just did? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John helpfully tells us there that Jesus was not talking about this physical temple that had been built. He was instead talking about the temple of his body. Jesus here points to himself as the replacement for the temple. If we think of the temple as the place that God had chosen, the place that God had, had, had built for him where he could dwell on earth, Jesus is that place where God dwells on earth. Thus, the temple in Jerusalem is no longer the place where God dwells. So Jesus himself is one one, uh, thing that scripture speaks to of replacing the temple. That's not the only thing. Believers ourselves, those who have trusted in Christ, are individually spoken of as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is said to be in us, God dwelling within us. And in John 14, Jesus speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all coming and dwelling and making their home within the believer. But not just us as individuals, us as the church, as God's people, corporately, make up the temple of God with each of us individually as living stones, as Peter says. So this should hopefully not be a new concept for us, that the temple in the old covenant system has been done away with. It is being rendered obsolete by Jesus on the cross, by virtue of ushering in a new covenant. What Jesus points to here is the fact that the mode of worship, the way people worship, outwardly, is changing. But the object of worship is not. It is still God. We as his children still worship him who is our father. So the idea of a physical location where worship takes place, where worship must take place, is being rendered obsolete by the cross. This physical location, the temple, is not being replaced by a new location, but the very idea of worship of God being tied to a specific physical location or a specific physical expression is what is being done away with. The place where man comes now to meet with God and comes to worship God is found not in a temple, not in a church building, but it is found in Christ, and it's found in us, both as individuals and as a people. These are now the temple of God. So Jesus' first point here is that this physical location is being done away with. The focal point of of the worship of God is no longer tied to physical locations. His second point here actually answers her question a little more directly. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus effectively here says, the Jews are right. To this point, the worship in Jerusalem is the true way that God has set up worship. That Mount Gerizim is wrong. That's effectively what Jesus says here. He says that the God that the Samaritans, you there, it's a plural you, the Samaritans as a whole, what they worship They do not know. By virtue of the fact that they have rejected scripture past the Pentateuch, they have cut themselves off from a massive portion of the revelation that God himself has given. God has given much revelation through his prophets. We have a large portion of scripture dedicated to him speaking through the prophets and further revealing himself. And so rejecting that scripture cuts them off from that revelation. I compare it similarly to a modern-day Jew rejecting Christ and the New Testament. 
by missing out on that additional revelation of God, they are trying to worship a God apart from what he has revealed about himself. They cannot know this God that they are trying to worship if they are rejecting what this God has said about himself. So the Samaritans are not within the stream of revelation that God has given. Their worship is not, therefore, based on truth or knowledge of this God. We see this in Ezra. So the southern kingdom also is exiled. It is taken to Babylon. And they eventually are allowed to return under Cyrus, the king of Persia, after Persia has conquered Babylon. They are allowed to return and allowed to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. When they come back, the Samaritans see them coming back and are interested in this. So at the beginning of chapter 4 of Ezra, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, so these adversaries would be the Samaritans from the northern kingdom, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The Samaritans come to them and are firmly rejected by the Jews because they do not worship the same God that the Jews worship, despite their claims. This goes all the way back to the beginning of this divide. Uh, In 2 Chronicles, when the kingdom splits, Abijah, the king of Judah, speaks out against Jeroboam, who is the first king of the northern kingdom. And at the heart of his attack against him is the fact that they have corrupted the worship of God. Jeroboam has set up golden calves in various areas of where they are performing their worship in the northern kingdom. He has driven out all of the priests and the Levites and has effectively become just like all the other nations around them. They are no longer distinct. They are no longer unique. And therefore, they are no longer worshiping the God who made them. In contrast to that, Jesus says that the Jews worship what they know. This is not an unconditional endorsement of Jewish worship, particularly not at the time. Remember just two chapters earlier here, Jesus has cleared the temple speaking against the corruption that had, that had started to take root within the Jewish system at that time. Instead, what Jesus is talking about is that the Jews are at the heart of God's revelation of himself. The Jews are the ones through whom God had chosen to reveal himself to this time. They are the ones through whom Messiah would come. So on the basis of this fact, further revelation of God, including the advent of Messiah himself, must come from the Jews. That's exactly what we see in Jesus. Jesus coming from the Jews, from the house of David, through this kingly line of Judah. So fundamentally what Jesus is saying is that worship of God requires that we know him and that we know him as he has revealed himself. We cannot worship what we do not know. Jesus goes on to kind of bring these two ideas together when he says, when the true worshipers, there's a time coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Talks about true worshipers. This is not necessarily a distinction between old and new covenant worship. There were true and false worshipers in the old covenant system. You can go all the way back to the beginning and there are true and false worshipers. Cain and Abel are an excellent example of this. Just the second generation. What sets these true worshipers apart? 
These true worshipers are not identified by where they worship or what they do. They're worshipped in, they're identified in how they worship. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Cain and Abel, that example, before the old covenant system was ever established. The author says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Cain and Abel brought offerings to God, both of them. There's a lot that's been said and argued that maybe the content of their offerings was what set them apart. I think what Hebrews points to is not that their content was different, but that the heart behind those offerings is what was different. What made Abel's acceptable? Hebrews says his faith. It's by faith that he was able to offer a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Jesus says that those true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. As one way of explanation of that, he says that God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When Jesus says God is spirit, what he's saying there is a definitional statement. He's not saying that God is like a spirit, God is compared to a spirit, not even that God is a spirit. He's saying that God is Spirit. This phrase shows up often in the Old Testament, in the prophets, as part of a parallelism. On the one hand, you have man, who is described as flesh. And on the other hand, you have God, who is described as spirit. So saying God is spirit is, saying, is highlighting his distinctiveness and his uniqueness as compared to man. There's a fundamental difference between God and man. God is not physical, is one of the implications here. He is not tied to a physical location, just as worship will no longer be tied to a physical location. It emphasizes his divinity. He is divine as opposed to human. He is wholly other than humanity. Because of that otherness, God is unknowable to humans unless he chooses to reveal himself to them. And the flip side of that is that humans are thus fully knowable and known by God. There can be no hiding, there can be no pretense. You cannot trick or lie to God. So with all that in mind, let's look at this idea of worshiping in spirit and truth. To say that we must worship in spirit, Jesus is saying that worship is fundamentally spiritual, not physical. This is evidenced in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Even when doing all of the physical outward things that the Old Covenant required, worship was unacceptable without a spirit or a heart that was devoted to God. This is not to say that the places and the forms of worship are irrelevant, but they are not the measure of what makes true worship. It is not enough to outwardly exhibit forms of worship. True worship demands the entirety of our being engaged in the worship of God. One of the best examples of this comes in the book of Amos. The people have fallen into idolatry once again, and as a in their idolatry, they've, uh, justice has been corrupted to an extreme degree. They have become the oppressors, Israel has. But in the midst of this, they are continuing to do the things that the old covenant system of worship demands. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still bringing offerings. They're still seeking to have their sins forgiven through these by God. God says in Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
The people were outwardly keeping the requirements for worship in the law, but they were doing it in the midst of this great sin. Idolatry is at its heart. Injustice to the poor and the oppressed, with Israel themselves being the ones who become the oppressors. God's desire here that he expresses is not just that they worship him outwardly, but that their hearts and their spirits are devoted to him, so that the outward expression they're doing is in line with their inward reality. Without that, their worship is false, and God has strong language he uses here. It is firmly rejected by God. The reality for the Jews at the time and the reality for us now is that on our own, our dead and rebellious spirits cannot do that. We will all be like the Jews here, offering empty and vain worship to God. We need a new spirit within us. God is not interested in outward obedience or manufactured expressions of worship, thinking modernly. If you raise your hands in church, that doesn't necessarily mean you're worshiping. It doesn't mean you're not worshiping, but it doesn't mean you are. Doing the things, coming to church Sunday morning, giving into the offering every week, that is not what God looks at to say, are you worshiping? God is looking at your hearts and those as the outflow of those hearts. He wants all of us. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to, prevent, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To worship in spirit means to offer our bodies, our whole selves, as living sacrifices given into the service of God. This means worship flows outward from a spirit devoted to God. It involves all of our being, not just an outward expression. We cannot do this on our own. Jesus says that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God had to seek such people because such people did not exist, would not find him on their own. He sought us instead and gave us this new spirit, this new capacity to enable us to worship him in spirit. The other side of this coin is worshiping in truth, and these two go very much together. We can only know God to the extent that he has revealed himself to us. We already talked about how God has revealed himself in creation. We talked about how God has revealed himself in scripture. The most important revelation of God, though, comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, the very beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, power of his, by the word of his power. In John's gospel, this idea of Jesus as the supreme revelation of God is wrapped up in his use of calling Jesus the word of God. That term logos, the message of God. A lot wrapped up in that. But the gist is that he is the fullest and most complete revelation that God has ever given. God can be fully seen in Jesus. So apart from that revelation, we cannot know and we cannot worship God. We looked at in Amos an example of worshiping in truth without spirit. So worshiping in accordance with what God has revealed without a spirit behind it. I want to look now at an example of the opposite. Worship with spirit apart from truth. And this comes in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. David has decided to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. The ark had been captured by the Philistines. It had been rescued from the Philistines some 70 years ago, but it had been sitting in the house of Abinadab for 70 years at this point. It had not returned to Jerusalem. 
He consults with the people, and the whole nation agrees that restoring the ark to Jerusalem, bringing it back to the center of Israel's focus, bringing God's seat, his throne, back to his, his city is a good thing. So I'll pick up in verse 5 of 1 Chronicles, chapter 13. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebohatham to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. What we see here is this heartfelt worship of the entire congregation. The entire congregation of Israel is celebrating this moment when God's throne is returning to his city. There is music, there is singing, there is dancing, all of this to celebrate this great moment. But in the midst of it, Uzzah is struck dead. He takes this action to stop the ark from falling. The oxen stumbled, the cart tips, the ark is going to fall. Uzzah puts out his hand to steady it. He does not want the holy ark of God to be defiled by falling into the dirt. The problem is is that his action is in direct violation of the explicit commands of God. And Uzzah, as a Levite, would know this. The very fact that they put the ark onto a cart violates the explicit commands of God. This is the most holy item within the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple. No one was to ever touch the ark. The only way they could move it was the Levites transporting the ark, carrying it using poles that would be put through rings on the outside of the ark. They never themselves would touch the ark, and it would be covered when they transported it to, pe- to keep the congregation from even seeing it. It was that holy. Moving it on this cart, and certainly Uzzah putting out his hand to touch it, violates the explicit commands of God. Their heartfelt expressions, their sincere desire for the name and the fame of God throughout his people was corrupted by their flouting of the truth that God had revealed about himself. If the temple were rebuilt today and Old Covenant worship were reestablished perfectly, all was done in accordance with the law. Worship was done in accordance with the law completely and with passionate spirits driving it, this would still be unacceptable worship. The book of Hebrews makes this extremely clear. As we read, the Old Covenant has been rendered obsolete. Going back to that ignores the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Passionate worship is not enough if it is not based in and connected to knowing God as he has revealed himself. And this necessitates that we know God as he has revealed himself most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we cannot be true worshipers. final part of this that I want to look at then is how do we do this? This is a tall order. Worshiping in spirit and truth is a big ask. It's a lot. Jesus gives us the answer in his response to this woman. He says, the hour is coming and is now here. He's pointing to himself as the first true worshiper, the one who worships in spirit and truth perfectly, as God originally intended Adam to do. He is the perfect and preeminent worshiper of God the Father. 
By phrasing it this way, Jesus is pointing to the accomplished reality of the work he will do. The hour is coming, but it is now here. It is exemplified in Jesus. The worshipers in the hour that is coming will be like the worshiper in the hour now here. So the question then is, how does Jesus worship? What does Jesus' worship look like to help us identify what does our worship need to look like? A little bit later in John chapter 4, Jesus' disciples come back to him after this conversation. They have food. He hasn't eaten. They're concerned that he needs to eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He goes on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His food, he talks about, the thing that sustains him, the thing that he needs, the thing that he seeks first and over everything else is to do the Father's will, to accomplish his work. This is what Jesus does to worship the Father. This is how Jesus brings glory to the Father, is through his obedience, his submission, his desire to see the will of God enacted. His entire life on earth is dedicated to bringing glory to the Father. Everything then that Jesus does is an act of worship. In his baptism, we see him submitting to the plan that God has, fulfilling all righteousness, as Jesus says, and God himself being revealed, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In his temptation, we see him resisting the temptations of the devil by quoting the scriptures of God, the revelation of God, back to him, standing firm on the truth that God has revealed. In his cleansing of the temple, we see his righteous anger. He is physically angry and physically drives these people out because of his passion for the glory of God, for his passion for the name of God and his fame. All of his miraculous works testify to the fact that he is seeking to bring glory to God. This is why he does all of his works. John chapter 5, shortly after this, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem and he heals a man at this pool of Bethesda. This is a very unique miracle in Jesus' ministry. This is one of the only miracles in Jesus' ministry where he is completely the initiator of this miracle. This man does not seek him out. Jesus seeks this man out. And there's no indication from this story that this man ever comes to faith. Jesus chooses to heal this man, tells him, take up your bed and walk, specifically on the Sabbath, specifically for the purpose of initiating the conflict with the Jewish leaders that will ultimately lead to his death on the cross. This is Jesus worshiping God, fully submitting himself to the plan and purpose of God for him. In the Gospels, when he calls out the Jewish leaders and pronounces his woes upon them, this is Jesus worshiping God, defending his people. His weeping at the grave of Lazarus, weeping over the consequences of what sin has done to this world. This is him worshiping God. His prayers, including his Gethsemane prayer and his wonderful high priestly prayer recorded for us in John, testify to him seeking the glory of God and seeking fully to worship God. Throughout all of this, his willing submission to the plan and purpose of God, and most importantly, his submission to the horror of the cross. In all of this, Jesus exemplifies what it means to be a living sacrifice long before he became a literal sacrifice. So this is what it means to be a true worshiper, a life devoted to the glory of God in all things, in all circumstances. God created all things to worship him. But since Adam's failure, that worship has been corrupted, it's been impure, it's been full of failure. Jesus comes as this first perfectly true worshiper. He is the first to perfectly fulfill the role that God had for man from the beginning.
And so now, after the cross, God is transforming his people, those who put their faith in Christ, who are resting on the truth, the revelation of God in Christ, he is transforming those people into the image of Christ. He is transforming us, those who have believed, into the true worshipers that he desires his people to be. So this isn't a matter of us working hard to worship God. God is doing this in and through us. He's doing this in us with the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming us into the image of Christ. This is a painful and at oftentimes messy process, but that transformation is what enables us to be able to worship God. So the command here is to worship God in spirit and truth. This is what Jesus says the Father is looking for. If we worship solely, if we view worship, I should say, solely as the couple hours we gather here on Sunday morning, we are missing an opportunity to become active participants in what, is, what God is doing in and through us for his glory. couple things to leave you with here as I close. I talked about this battle for worship that has been going on from the beginning, and it's a battle of what will be worshiped. Will it be God or something else? For the believer, since we have been changed and are being transformed into the image of Christ, this battle for worship is more a battle of the way that we think rather than the battle of what we do. Our definition and our understanding of what worship is has to expand. If this is worship just here this morning, which it is, but if this is all it is, we are selling worship short. If it's just music, if it's just singing, if it's just the pious things that we do or the the holy things that we do, the Christian things that we do that is worship to God, we are missing out on what God actually desires and has for his people. Everything, every aspect of life falls into the arena of worship. We need to think in those terms, think in those ways, so that we can see the opportunities that God has for us to bring glory to him in all of life. Second thought, back to the beginning with the fall of Adam and the battle for worship. When we identify sin in ourselves, part of this sanctification process, God revealing our own sin to us. When we identify sin, examine that sin in terms of this question, what am I worshiping? If you want to drive to the heart of what our sin is and what causes us to sin, drive to that question, what am I worshiping? It helps us to bring greater light into our sin. It helps us to shine the light of truth more clearly on it so that we can see it and ourselves more clearly and more openly. And through that process, become more and more like Christ. So God's desire for his people is that they be true worshipers. They be like the one who is the greatest of the true worshipers, that we be like Christ, and that we seek to live lives that are living sacrifices dedicated to the worship of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for what you reveal about yourself and your desires here. I pray, Father, that we can see it clearly. I pray that we can be transformed in the ways that you desire. Thank you, Father, for the work you have already begun in those who have believed in you. For that transformative work of placing a new spirit within us, taking out that heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, giving us this capacity to worship you and love you and bring you glory in ways that you desire. Help us, Father, as your people 
to be seeking your glory, to be seeking your glory and your name and your fame above all things. Father, help us to elevate you at all times above everything, including ourselves, most especially ourselves. Humble us, Father, as Jesus was humbled. And help us to have that same heart of willing submission to your desires and your will. It's in your Son's name, Jesus, we ask all of these things. Amen.